Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Spreading Global Freedom, or the Divine Right to Traffic Drugs, Guns, and People. The music for this program features two men who likely had some measure of influence on each other's future work, American jazz trumpeter Buck Clayton and Chinese scholar, composer, and songwriter Li Jinhui. Our opening song is Cherokee from Count Basie, featuring Buck Clayton, which is, I promise, oddly apropos for a show which centers on narco-trafficking in East Asia. While the music we'll hear is far removed from the historical context of today's show, the period of the opium wars in China, or what our guest calls the wars for drugs, in the mid-19th century, it does seem to me to fairly illustrate the unreliability of official histories, state and corporate propaganda, even as it's demonstrative of hegemonic realities on the ground. From 1934 or 1935 to 1937, Kansas native Buck Clayton was a leader of the jazz group The Harlem Gentlemen in Shanghai at the Canadrome Ballroom. Clayton would play a number of songs that were composed by Li Jinhui, adopting the Chinese music scale into the American scale. While there is much to say about this period and about this musical relationship, there is not much time here. One perspective is that Lee learned much from Clayton, and because of that transculturation, came to be known as the father of Chinese popular music. This music came to be considered yellow music and was classed with pornography as a corrupter of public morals. It was wildly popular. As there are no recordings of Clayton available to us from this period, we'll play songs from his work with Count Basie, from the original American Decca collection spanning the years 1937 to 1939. And we'll hear one song written by Li Jinhui titled Drizzle, sung by his daughter Li Mingkui from 1927. Our guest today is Mark Driscoll, professor of East Asian studies at the University of North Carolina, whose new book is The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, Climate Caucasianism and Asian Ecological Protection published this January by Duke University Press. In it, Driscoll examines 19th century Western imperialism in Asia and the devastating effects of what he calls climate Caucasianism, the White West's pursuit of rapacious extraction at the expense of natural environments and people of color conflated with them. Driscoll reframes the opium wars as wars for drugs and demonstrates that these wars to unleash narco and human traffickers kick-started the most important event of the Anthropocene, the military substitution of Qing China's world-leading carbon-neutral economy for an unsustainable Anglo-American capitalism powered by coal. Today we track U.S. and British drug smugglers like Warren Delano Jr., the grandfather of U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was a partner in the firm Russell & Company, which decorated its ship's masts in the murdered bodies of Chinese men who refused the opportunity to be business associates. Another partner at Russell & Company, John Murray Forbes, was the great-granduncle of U.S. Senator John Kerry. And yes, those Forbes. We'll also travel from Veracruz, Mexico to Yokohama, Japan, aboard Commodore Matthew Perry's ship, the Powhatan, accompanied by a minstrel troupe. And now, spreading global freedom on Interchange on WFHB.
So my last book was really about um, Japanese colonialism in China and how that led into World War II, which was 15 years, much longer than the war. And, the you know, so much of our information in the U.S. is based on the Atlantic, the European theater. Um, but really, the, the action that led up to the world that we live in today really happened in the Asia Pacific, which was really a battle for white supremacy. Part of what Japan was doing, Japan launched a war against England, the U.S., and the Soviet Union at the same time. This is how crazy this was. But part of it was mobilized by a desire to get white men out of the Asia Pacific. This massive emigration of extractors, people who are extracting bodies, anything that they could get their hands on. Right. Uh, Doug, what's interesting to me is that really some of the same people that are involved in, I don't like the term plantation myself, I prefer prison plantation. Sure. Because planted, because prisons and jails were for white people before the end of the Civil War in the U.S. So I prefer the term prison plantation, but these plantation people, owners and overseers, were the same people who really occupied, did their damage selling guns, selling drugs, selling people, in the treaty ports in East Asia, which are the, the biggest financial centers of the world today. We're talking about Shanghai, Guangzhou, Tokyo. It was this massive reversal of economic and ecological relations that were happening. Without knowing that kind of history, it's really difficult to see the desire among East Asians to overcome that so-called treaty port imperialism or climate Caucasianism. Yeah, it's one of the things that we confront constantly here is just our, our massive ignorance of, of world history. You know, when you talk about repeating a template, in a sense, of, of how uh, these, as you, as you call them, extractors do their work in, in various other parts of the world, it's, yeah. it's just yeah. amazing. Um, They're the same people right, right. that are running these prison plantation economies in Honduras and the U.S. I mean, at the end of the Civil War, a lot of these plantation owners, enslaved domestic slave traders, right. go to the Asia Pacific and intensify the so-called coolie trade that had been happening. So what you're talking about, about some scholars call this Pacific Middle Passage. Mm. From 1839 to 1887, one million Chinese men are trafficked across the Pacific to replace freed enslaved people in the British colonies and in the U.S. Right. So this is really almost the same number. That 50-year period is very is comparable to the um, Atlantic uh, slave trade. Right, right. And, and you know, the numbers we get uh, by the time of the Civil War in the U.S. in terms of slaves or enslaved people turn something like 4 million, but those are actually bred in like Virginia and South Carolina at that point, so they're not uh, they're not trafficked, I suppose, across the the ocean, but trafficked uh, internally. One of the things that I really tried to bring out is, you know, there's this debate about the Great Divergence, about when did the UK overtake the China-centered trading system? The China-centered trading order was much bigger than all of Western Europe hmm. in the mid 1750s. So England and France 
And it's really very, very small. So from 1750 to 1850, China and its periphery has 40 or 45% of global trade with zero carbon emissions stock. This is the important thing. In 1850, China is an economic basket case. The U.S. and the U.K. now have totally not just taken their place, but humiliated them, but also installed this regime, again, this ecocidal regime of climate Caucasianism. This is the, you know, the beginning of our world today. So it's important to foreground that and also to foreground the fact that the East Asian intellectuals, some of the ones I write about, both the ones that are educated in the, in the peasant resistance, they resisted this completely. They saw that it was an ecocidal regime, that it was a white supremacist regime, that it was this myopic, profit-oriented regime. They resisted this at all all these different levels. Mm. So that's one of the other things that I wanted to bring out. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Spreading Global Freedom or the Divine Right to Traffic Drugs, Guns, and People with author Mark Driscoll, professor of East Asian Studies at the University of North Carolina. His new book is The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, Climate Caucasianism and Asian Ecological Protection, about the way U.S. and British narco-traffickers opened markets in China and Japan and accelerated anthropogenic global warming. The Asian resistance isn't often talked about. It's condemned, especially the peasant resistance. I'm referring to the Boxer Rebellion Hmm. and other groups like them. Um, But it's really kind of what I discovered doing this book is the terms of that resistance and some of the language correlates to Native American, indigenous resistance all over the world to this, you know, to capitalist extraction. I was shocked to find that out. We're led to believe that people all over the world have accepted that. Right. You know, as a more enlightened, a more benevolent, a more productive regime. But the truth is exactly the opposite. This is a very, very minor project that's tried to present itself as universal in terms of Lockean private property, right. in terms of human rights, in terms of Baconian science. But East Asians on the ground saw this and they did everything they could to prevent its incursion into their homelands. Uh, key to this, of course, is the atomization, right, of the individual and trying to give primacy to the, the internal self. Uh, so this is a key to our sort of Western philosophical idea. We praise it. We promote it. Individualism, even our great books, right, uh, from Emerson to Whitman to, uh, to you name it, not Melville. I think this is key to the book. You know, it's one of the things that has that was interesting to me was how I have to unthink those things. So my praise and my interest, my my own passion for particular books becomes complicit, right? My own understanding of the world through those titles, through that literature through that education even if i'm already i'm able to understand capitalism as a bad thing and be anti-capitalist i'm in an emersonian world let's talk about your title i think the book is kind of encapsulated in the title and it, it begs explanation obviously so the whites are enemies of heaven uh is is the main title of course and then it's uh, climate caucasianism and asian ecological protection it's a provocative title i like it very much tell us a little bit about where that comes from it took me about six or seven years to see that i kept 
going over this phrase in both Japanese and Chinese. Um, in East Asian thought, generally, there's a lot we could say about this, but for your audience, it's just heaven is the place where all human action should be held accountable to. Hmm. So it's a, it's a place where ancestors are, where the past is and where the future will be directed from. So there are different inflections of that in Japanese native thought, nativist thought, in Taoism, and in Neo-Confucianism. So those three places have similar language. We're having, again, not that different from Christianity. Again, we're all going to be supposedly held accountable by this moral force, however it's going to be um, fleshed out. So I kept coming up against this phrase, both among educated people and among uneducated peasants, Doug. So it became the title, and it took me a long time to see that. But this is a a case where, in some sense, facts were producing the codes Mm -hmm. through which larger projects get read. So oftentimes, these leftist historians, like almost all my friends are leftist historians, were accused of forcing our leftist ideas onto facts. Well, really, most of the time, it's the exact opposite. (laughs) Facts are telling us they're screaming at us to deal with us ethically and therefore frame us in a way that's going to respect what we're saying. Even as you're taught that the victors write history, which is a, yeah. a commonplace for anybody that studies, and even, even kids in high school probably know this particular thing, but that's okay. Victors should write history. That's, that's kind of the idea that stu- that's a part of this kind of um, uh, the divine right to steal even that you quote Du Bois of, uh, as saying, right? It's, it's kind of the mentality. Of course, the victors write history. There is no history other than the victorious history. What other story matters? Everything else matters more, right? To understand what, what, what the victors have destroyed. Uh, exactly, Doug. Right, yeah. Right. And also the language, mm. progress, development, right. growth. So the colonizers, the white colonizers, get to tell their story in their own way. Right. It's very difficult to extricate ourselves completely from these things. Again, right. you say degrowth and people think you're a lunatic. Right, right. <laughs> so it's so powerful, that hegemonic discourse right. about development, about still the language in, in Japan and China is this. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Is civilizing. It's time for a break. This is Dark Rapture, another from Count Basie, featuring Buck Clayton on trumpet. During a performance at the Canadrome Ballroom in Shanghai, an American named Jack Riley sucker punched Buck Clayton, supposedly for looking at Riley's date. As this wasn't the American South, the band promptly took care of Jack Riley. Stay with us. Nighttime brings dark rapture, bringing us delight. While we both recapture the thrill that fills the still of a Congo night. Tropic breezes tell us love that's wild and free While we share the spell of the jungle wonder under a bamboo tree Why do we hear the tom-tom every time our hearts meet because The tom-toms are the way our hearts May we share dark rapture as the years take flight. May we always capture the thrill that fills us still 
of a Congo Welcome back to Interchange. We begin this segment of spreading global freedom, unpacking what our guest Mark Driscoll calls an ugly phrase for an ugly phenomenon, climate Caucasianism. We'll also get to hear about a minstrel show put on by the historically decorated U.S. national hero, Commodore Matthew Perry, aboard the ship named the Powhatan. Obviously, your, your book tries to detail the problem of climate catastrophe and the problem of what we call the Anthropocene, which is tied to that climate catastrophe. It's become a thing because we want to point to the ways in which humans have affected the natural world. But there's a way in which we now argue over you know, where this begins. Um, your particular story uh, is kind of about how climate uh, catastrophe is given uh, force and speed in the ways that, um, and particularly British and American white uh, extractors, as you say, uh, really, really sort of put the pedal down in in Japan and China. Uh, climate Caucasianism is to say Caucasians are the problem with climate catastrophe. Doug, yeah, yeah. it's an it's an uglier phrase. It's an ugly phrase <laughs> is, yeah. for an even uglier right. phenomenon. Right. The way I'm using it now in my in the book that I'm writing right now is climating white people, mm. climating white capitalists. You know, the debates around the Anthropocene have been great. Just a little bit of background. Historians in East Asia sure. say that a similar kind of phenomenon, that being looking at nature or the, or the extra human world as a resource before anything else, was also prevalent in East Asia, in East Asian studies, both in East Asia and here. I disagree with that mm. because we have the, you could go to the scientific revolution with Bacon. Bacon was, a, he celebrated extractive engineers. That's what he, mining was going to get us there. And the way that experimenters and the scientist had to imagine himself is outside of what he was investigating. So you see that, what I call extra action, it's connection to extraction, right. right at the beginning of the scientific revolution, Doug. Then you go to the capitalist revolution, lock, you know, subdue the earth. There are obviously kind of biblical precedents for this, right. but they're all cherry picking Bacon, Francis Bacon, Locke. They're the ones that set this up, where white men, educated European men, imagine themselves to be not governed by environmental forces, but governing those forces, right. manipulating them for, again, progress, development, capital accumulation. Those two, Baconian science and Lockean privatization, there's nothing comparable to them right. in East Asia, nothing. And then, okay, then you go to the Enlightenment. So you have these key moments. Obviously, you can read different things in all of those moments. But I would argue the representative um, epistemologies, and again, the scientific revolution, capitalist revolution, and the enlightenment, all talk about 
white men as being not determined by the body like everyone else is, or physical things, but being determined by other supernatural things, will, power, desire, etc. But now to jump into the present, we all know about the pollution deficit, right? right? That the neighborhoods where black folks live have a lot more, this is environmental racism, but much more specifically, pollution debits and credits just map onto white and non-white differentials yeah. in our world today. Yeah, no matter no matter where where you are now, you're you're a part of the climate Caucasian world. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, and then your your third term there is Asian ecological protection. You've been talking about sort of the differences between again. I think this is you know the philosophy and understanding of how one is located within nature is a part of this conversation. A part of the differences between Enlightenment thinking of white philosophers and economists, etc., uh, versus the idea of the human as a part of the world. Specifically, there's protection in there as well. So you, you clearly have some idea about how an Asian ecological perspective is protectionist of the, of the environment. This is, this is presentist, which is, again, why some historians right. are, are, have already completely rejected this stuff, which is fine. Right. Uh, I don't care about that. Um, but I did want to show the contemporary resonances with water protectors, river protectors, land protectors, right. this movement that's happening globally, right? right? Not just in the U.S. And show that that was really the language that people were using on the ground to resist this. The metaphor I use is from Lovecraft Country. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. Well, white supremacy is depicted as this monstrous visitation. That's really how they saw this, mm -hmm. that it was polluting and environmentally destructive right. at a number of different levels. So, and then the specifics of that, uh, the U.S. invasion of Japan, the Perry invasion in 1853 mm. and 1854 was done for, for to identify coal resources. That was the main, was a secret. Right. It was never explicit. It was, it was never laid out explicitly in policy documents. It was a way for, for to increase kind of U.S. merchant marines to kill more whales, right. to traffic more Chinese and Japanese workers, to do all those kinds of things. But to do that, they had to have coal to power steamships done. That was the raison, raison d'etre for the invasion of Japan. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Spreading Global Freedom or the Divine Right to Traffic Drugs, Guns, and People with author Mark Driscoll, professor of East Asian Studies at the University of North Carolina. His new book is The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, Climate Caucasianism and Asian Ecological Protection, about the way U.S. and British narco-traffickers opened markets in China and Japan and accelerated anthropogenic global warming. So Perry is dispatched to uh, uh, Japan after uh, taking care of Mexico, basically, right? And this is uh, Millard Fillmore is president at the time. So um, again, 1854. So uh, this is the year Walden was published. And, and, and of course, Thoreau is big on this, the Mexican War. Uh, you know, that's what civil disobedience is about. And at the same time, we, you know, we go from Mexico over to Japan. 
uh, and the same the same people, the same doing the same things. Uh, so um, the actual like story you tell about the uh, minstrel show and the sort of pomp and circumstance that happens is just unreal. And there's a playbill, you know, like there's a little playbill with all these ridiculous things on it. You would read that playbill in a Melville story. This is a Melville story itself, right? And it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. But uh, so if you don't mind, uh, give a little bit of that. Doug, no, you put it very well. I mean, all you can say is that Perry, he was he was promoted partly for shelling civilians in Veracruz. So this is shock and awe. Right. He brought that to East Asia. And again, Japan is loaded with people, samurai class, who are trained as killers. Right. So they're pretty kick-ass. Right, right. The U.S. didn't really know that. But when Perry shows up, and to, Tokyo's also the biggest city in the world at the time, Doug. It's incredibly dynamic economically. Perry shows up in Yokohama, just south of Tokyo, in he has this demonstration of howitzers. So 2,000 yards, they demonstrate where they just obliterate these peasant shacks. They didn't even bother to take, see if the people were still in the shacks. This is what he did in the, the, right outside of Yokohama. He said, if you don't do what we say in six months, we're going to do this to the largest city in the world. We're going to kill everybody in your capital and burn down everything. If you don't agree to change everything, or at least this trade situation we demand. So he said, I'll give you six months to think about it. And then he came back with the most technologically sophisticated fighting force that had ever been amassed. Eight warships, all steam powered, fighting force 2000 and a minstrel troop, Doug. A minstrel troop. That is important is the weapons traffickers that were on board is all the other things. The minstrel show in addition to saying that we can kill everybody if we want to, and we will, damn it, because we have done that. Right. We will easily kill all you people. Right. We'll have no compunctions about it because we are more civilized. <laughs> right. So along with that, that attitude, part right. of that attitude is to show how uncivilized everybody else is, including some of the black actors that were on the ship. But of course, most of those actors are white guys blacked up. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's the amazing thing. A minstrel show, um, you know, again to show uh, the kinds of uh, lesser beings that are your your sort of puppet puppet masters of that you carry around uh, as well, and and to say, you know, do you want to all be enslaved people also? Plus, I think one of the ships was the Powhatan. Uh, again, it's too perfect, right? That just can't make it up. No, you can't. And can't make it up. No, it's too perfect. No, that's right. Unbe- too awful. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Too awful. Yeah. You can see this this again this monstrous climating regime that East Asians thought wanted to totally change everything that their world was about and to to delegitimize everything that had led up to that world. Right. Their ancestors were backward savages. Right. Their intellectual, their spiritual systems were barbaric, all these kinds of things. So they wanted to delegitimize that in the name of what? Climating Christian capitalists. Right, right. right. It reminded me a lot of uh, any any uh, uh, Hayao Miyazaki movie I've ever watched. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Japanese New Left thought, especially environmental New Left thought from the 60s and 70s, which is where he comes from. Yeah. Definitely was involved in this very critical of U.S. imperialism. Yeah.
It's time for another break. This is Drizzle, written by the father of Chinese pop, Li Jinhui, and sung by his daughter, Li Minghui. When we return, we'll hear familiar names in U.S. history, but in the context of human and narco-trafficking. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. In this segment of our show, we'll talk with Mark Driscoll about the violent and sadistic men who traveled 2,000 miles from Calcutta, India, to Guangzhou, China, to open markets in China for the U.S. and Britain. We've already talked about the uh, the economic stage, and it's one of the points that you make uh, is generally the idea that there's a trade surplus, or you know that that China has been successful as much because Britain and the U.S. you know people want stuff from China, and China wants nothing from from Britain, and and a lot of this seems to be a drive to force a market, right? This is where the the opium comes in, right? Where there there needs to be a thing to sell into China. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about the, I guess the first sort of strike there, I think there's, you talk about yeah, Lin's issue. Yeah. Commissioner yeah. Lin, yeah. Commissioner Lin, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a well-known figure, Doug. He gets sent to Guangzhou. Um, he can't really believe that when he figures out how the system's working, Doug, he can't believe the wild contradictions that this country is calling itself the height of European civilization or even world civilization. Yet... It's trying to steamroll its way into our country on the back of these slimy, completely immoral, corrupt drug dealers like FDR's grandfather, who right, right. was one of the biggest drug dealers in the world <laughs> at this time. I love it. So, Doug, yeah. yeah so yeah. The, this is this is in the critical Asian studies scholarship. This is this is a familiar story. Right. I kind of wanted to try to bring some new narrative strategies to bring that out. One of them was to really show, again, the longevity of the Sinocentric uh, trading hegemony and also to bring out countries like India, who are also as powerful as the UK or France. India and China are leading the world in terms of GDP level. So the frustration 
that this posed to British elites was to force people on the ground to identify something that could totally invert that. And it just so happened that India from the Battle of Palashi was the colonial rulers of the place where opium grew quite well, but also they could force peasants to grow opium or they'd shoot them or imprison them. Right. So you have a an endless supply that's free. <laughs> right. And you understand that there's a market. Opium is used in Southeast Asia and China a little bit for the upper class people. So you know some people are swallowing for the most part opium. Let's identify that as a market. We have free product. We have all these desperate white men who want to make money, like Jardine Matheson, like like Warren Delano. Let's outsource the drugs to them. They'll bring the drugs 2,000 miles from Calcutta <laughs> to Guangzhou, and they'll deal with all the contingencies, meaning exactly what the Medellin cartel deals with, right. killing anyone who gets in their way, right. bribing or killing port officials, doing all the stuff that every Netflix show right. on narcos would have us believe was invented by brown Latino drug dealers. Right. So what I wanted to show is all those things right. done from Medellin cartel, all the sadism, the brutality, those are inventions of white men done. The narco traffickers were fascinating, obviously. And as I said, when you look at, you know, the, the people that um, are born from them, right, too, you see that, that, you know, this is our American aristocracy uh, comes out of these these people who make make their money uh, on the worst thing in the world to do. Um, yeah, you know, not that's only, right. Not well, Jardine only, actually yeah. becomes an aristocrat, Doug. Yeah, right. So he isn't, it's not like an aristocrat. <laughs> right. He actually becomes... <laughs> He ends up in the House of Lords. Yeah, yeah. So, right. you know, Delano just becomes like the godfather figure, right? Right. But, Doug, the other thing I want to show, if I could just jump in very sure, quickly on that. Yeah. That story has been told before. Mm -hmm. I don't think it with the details that I try to try to bring out the bloodthirstiness of these people right. and how they were just cold-blooded murderers, right. which is why they ended up dominating the trade. They had no compunction about killing people to get... Um, you know, fairly addictive substances. But Doug, the other thing is the way that that was integrated, the horizontal integration, when people are spending all their money on ways to get high, right. what that does, if it gets depressing when you lose your jobs, or you lose your farm, or you lose your kids, when you have to sell them the way to human traffickers, so they can go to Honduras, right. or Cuba, or New Orleans, or wherever. So it just creates this cycle, people need more drugs to hold on to anything that they want to do, but that's a connection. That's the integration. So almost all the indentured servants come from Guangzhou. So these same companies that are selling drugs are picking up poor laborers, some of them who can't pay their drug debts, putting them on the same ships and bringing them to Central America. It's absolutely astounding, the integrated economy. But that's similar to what happened with the so-called crack cocaine epidemic hmm. well when money and drugs come into areas and in this place it came into the the leading economic place in the world no matter where it is if it's the south side of chicago when money and drugs come in bodies come out the other way so weapons drugs and money and this is what happened right. 
in the so-called opening of East Asia, opening of East Asia to these drug dealers, human traffickers, and weapons traffickers. That's who they were. They were the shock troops for the, it's not an opening of East Asia, it's an enclosing. It's a massive enclosure project that had an environmental logic to it as well done. So that's kind of what I wanted to try to show. It's very similar to the so-called war on drugs. But in the case of the opening of East Asia, it's a war for drugs. Right. That this is what shocked Commissioner Lindung. He says, oh, my God, you people, you're claiming to be God-fearing Christians. You're actually going to start a war with us to defend the indefensible? Don't you have any sense of heaven or cosmic justice? That's who you people are. You're enemies of everything that we consider benevolent, moral, uprighteous, civilized. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you say there's no way to even think about it in China or Japan. There's no way to understand what they're doing. And as you said already, that you just kill who's ever in the way, always. No problem, no question, no issue. Doesn't matter friend or foe, even. Uh, If you need to get it done, you get it done with violence. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Spreading Global Freedom or the Divine Right to Traffic Drugs, Guns, and People with author Mark Driscoll, professor of East Asian Studies at the University of North Carolina. His new book is The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, Climate Caucasianism and Asian Ecological Protection, about the way U.S. and British narco-traffickers opened markets in China and Japan and accelerated anthropogenic global warming. You know, you point to these East India Company, you know, boats. Uh, um, I forget which. Maybe it was Russell and Company clipper ships that you know would would put you know murdered bodies on their masts as they as they came into ports, and you know just basically as clear threats to anyone standing in their way. In the uh, way of progress, right? Right. In the way, in the way of, of civilization, that's right? That's, and development. Exactly. <laughs> no, Doug, yeah, that's, right. again, this is Medellin cartel stuff, right. supposedly. Uh, talk a little bit about your 4C idea. There's actually, I think, six Cs I counted there, but uh, you, <laughs> you, you do hyphenate them, so I guess they count as one. Um, but you, you say there are, these are uh, a circuit of captive contraband capital circuit, then, and, and with the clipper and coolie, which is, a you know, we'll put that in quotes as a degrading term, but the idea that you know, you've already been talking about it—the way that the the drugs go one way, the you know the trafficked people go the other way. Um, but they're also included in this, and and you mentioned already is the sort of militarized or the uh, military-industrial in complex uh, complex that begins to form here as well, because uh, drugs and guns go together, and types of weapons go together. You point this out as well. That their weapons are designed to fit on a ship so that they're lighter, so they can carry more drugs or more people the other direction. The weapons need to be lighter so we can kill better and have more capacity on the boats. That's it's right. just amazing. So it's astounding if you think about it, but that's really what happened, Doug. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing about the the weapons trafficking is often not emphasized enough. Right. But again, you create this instability. You create this instability, and then you say to whoever you're allying with at the moment, aha, we have the solution to this instability. We have the weapons that are going to protect you against the people that are now trying to overthrow your dynastic rule or your local warlord. So the problem is also the solution. 
Right. So this is, again, the thing. If, when drugs and weapons come into the south side of Chicago, whatever, bodies, dead bodies and living bodies are going to come out the other way in the opposite direction. Right. Yeah. So it's ingenious if you think about it. it really There's is. an evil genius that you have to bow down to here, Doug. Yeah, I understand that. You know, I, I do understand it. Again, being a Melvillian at heart or a believer in the kind of evil demiurge that actually created the world instead of a benevolent God, right? So I want to, uh, I guess if we can, um, kind of work through some of these uh, pers- perceptions of people that are shaped in this era as well. Like, so you can go from, um, you know, zero to 60 in racism in a hurry when you start to describe the types, you know, how people are, right? So if you're uh, if you're an opium user, and you're you become stupefied by it or all these things you know they begin to characterize people uh, by their their not only their physicality but their uh, subservience um, I think uh, I like the part in the introduction that you talk about uh, race and and race as yellow is the is the name of the section but you, you kind of walk through raciology and even mongoloidism uh, and down syndrome and the way these are clearly racist things that a lot of people wouldn't even I think today even kind of understand the racism of saying someone was mongoloid, sickly skin, yellow skin. This is in actually in Frankenstein in 1818, right? Frankenstein's monster is why he's, one of the reasons he's ugly is he's sickly and yellow. Yeah, uh, so that's right. it's, it's that's a part right. of that as well. Yeah. Again, these things help to shield what's happening on the ground, right. the human trafficking, the drug trafficking, you know, the weapons trafficking. If you just say, well, Chinese and naturally, predisposed to want to smoke opium, right. like all these missionaries said. So you get it from the absolute low levers, the drug dealers, to all the way up to these Christian missionaries and then the diplomatic elites. Scientific racism right. comes in and does its nasty work here and justifies, again, for the Chinese and Japanese, what's absolutely unjustifiable. Educated European language about right. brain shapes about physical disposition, predispositions to certain diseases. All these things kick in, Doug, to justify this massive reversal and this dramatic overtaking of, of all the people in the world and the world by this regime of climating white capital. It's not easy, but you have to justify that to those people and then to yourself, right? Right. Because some people, like these, you know, a lot of these people are God-fearing Christians. Right. You know, so the, the original drug dealers, the translators for Jardine Matheson, they were all missionaries. Hmm. So they it helped them do their dirty work when a European diplomat would explain, no, that's okay. Chinese naturally want to lay around on pillows and not do any work. Unlike us, right. we drink coffee and whiskey and we should be doing exactly what we're doing, you see. Right. There's nothing we can do to change that. These kind of dispositions are given by God. So they need, God would have us give Chinese the opium because God created them that way. This is what was, this is what they said to themselves, Doug. It's time for our final break, and here's another from Count Basie. This is The Dirty Dozens. Stay with us for more with author Mark Driscoll on his new book, The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, when Interchange returns. 
Welcome back to Interchange. In our final segment of Spreading Global Freedom, we'll hear about Catholic missionaries who blamed opium use for the lack of Christian conversions in China, and then we'll close with two Chinese thinkers who opposed the spread of global freedom by U.S. and British extractors, Zhang Tian and Tanaka Shozo. I think it's in chapter one. Lin Zishu yeah. says yeah. something to the effect of, you know, do you even read your, your Bible? But it's about really the first, I call it ecclesiastical colonialism. Mm. After there's been some work done on this, on the Catholic mm. missionaries in China. So the thing to know about the Catholic missionaries is it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that's followed the news about the depredations of some priests. But if you see about the 19th century, that this was, this was consistent with what was happening. Catholic priests are actually dealing drugs in Central and Western China. Um, you know, so they were doing all these things. Um, you know, that again, it's it's easier for us to see that now. Right. To see how that would have been naturalized in the 19th century, but it took a long time to get to that. Yeah. Still, there are scholars who promote the Catholic missionary presence is being more enlightened than the Protestant one. Right. Mm. Um, it's just absolutely astounding. But yeah, so that was an official mm. in Sichuan who's saying, these people, how can you claim to be men of God when what you're doing is raping young Chinese women and girls, sometimes boys? Mm. You're selling them drugs. This is what you're doing. You're selling them weapons. What did we do to deserve this visitation, right, right. this most unwelcome visitation? Right, right. And so much of the scholarship has been desperate to turn that around, Doug. Hmm. That monstrous visitation was actually the civilizers bringing, right. bringing enlightenment, bringing science, right. bringing, <laughs> bringing the rule of law, right. bringing constitutions to backward and barbaric. East Asia. That's what I was taught. Right. Oh, sure. In, in college. Yeah. That's what I was taught. An incredible leisure demand that was, a sleight of hand. Right. To totally invert the reality on the ground. Yeah, unfortunately, it, it is it is it is that way, and and that is the hard part about understanding these things is the the sheer amount of violence that's justified um, in these ways. It's just ridiculous. Um, one thing. That, that the other thing. One yeah, more. If ahead. I could just jump sure, in of course, here. Sure. The first thing is that um, again we have these two wars for drugs, the so-called first and second opium war. But Doug, an interesting thing happened, and this is in the last chapter of the book. Um, an interesting thing happened is that these peasants basically took over, undercut the British drug dealers. Hmm. They started, this is import substitution. They started to grow opium themselves outside of the channels created and controlled by, by Anglo-American drug dealers. Mm -hmm. So the eco economies, especially in Western China and Southwestern China, really took off around growing organic products there was a multiplier effect where people would, um, um, you know, build opium rooms. And um, so there was a real economic boom set up around opium. And this, this, this is connected to the overthrow of the Chinese dynastic rule, Doug. So China had, whoever you believe, 2,000 or 4,000 years of dynasties. That ended in 1911. It ended in 1911 because the Qing rulers, pressured by 
Euro-American Protestant missionaries to outlaw the drug trade because the missionary, this is also amazing, the missionaries are frustrated that no one was converting to Protestantism or before that Catholicism. They thought it was because of the rampant drug use. Mm. People's brains were too fogged to see the awesomeness and the how how great the Christianity was. So if you just outlawed, they forced the Qing dynasty to do this. They wanted to substitute injections of morphine and narcotics, which of course are more dangerous. So they opened up these drug opium detox centers where they gave these poor people injections that are 20, 30, 40 times stronger than smoking. When you smoke anything, the narcotic disappears in the smoke for the most part. But when you're getting injected with these substances, so these American and British Protestants forced this war on a, yet another war on drugs. It was met with a war to defend China, defend peasant opium growers and smokers in the face of both Protestant anti-opium imperialism and the Qing dynasty that finally got on board with this um, Protestant anti-opium message Hmm. and did initiate a crackdown, an opium suppression campaign, which, of course, was met with massive resistance by all these recreational smokers who smoked once or twice a day. They grew opium for extra money. Their restaurants and businesses and bars were set up, especially in Western China. So this was also an interesting phenomenon. Hmm. So there was... I call them three wars for drugs, Doug. The first were the ones that were set up by England and then the U.S. And then the last one was really against England and the U.S. and against the Qing dynasty that really led to the Chinese Revolution, the Republican, the overthrow of dynastic rule in December 1911 hmm. was led by these opium smoking poor peasants. That was <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I found. I lived in. I lived in this, you probably had Sichuanese food, yeah. Doug. So I lived in, I was lucky to be able to live there for about two and a half years and doing some research on this. I kind of just discovered this, trying to follow this, what I call this Asian undercommons, mm-hmm. where people were do anything to protect their protect their homeland in the face of these, these barbarians, basically, these enemies of heaven. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is Spreading Global Freedom or the Divine Right to Traffic Drugs, Guns, and People with author Mark Driscoll, professor of East Asian Studies at the University of North Carolina. His new book is The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, Climate Caucasianism and Asian Ecological Protection, about the way U.S. and British narco-traffickers opened markets in China and Japan and accelerated anthropogenic global warming. feel like we need to talk about, uh, was it Zhang Tian? To, Zhang, Zhang. Zhang Tian. I'd like to hear uh, just a little bit about him, actually, and you know, we'll, we'll close with that. Um, he's a near-exact contemporary of Du Bois, being born in about the same year, 68 or 69, 1868 or 69, depending on the source. Uh, Tian is called a philosopher and revolutionary, uh, perhaps akin to even the Cuban uh, Jose Marti, who was born in, I think, 1853, has kind of a similar a role to play in in you know trying to stand against the imperial predator. John's an incredibly interesting person, really one of the most 
two or three most important revolutionaries in China, who was imprisoned by the Qing for his participation in an anti-dynastic uprising. So he was put in prison and did survive a very brutal imprisonment, which he, he became really a hero through that. He was a philologist. He thought there was very little of value in kind of Euro-American kind of culture of thought. He thought that everything that China needs to, to move forward is all in the classics, in the intellectual endowment that he was a scholar of. He was not a Europhile or a modernizationist. He was a traditional Chinese scholar, Doug, who was a, but decolonial, very much concerned with with ridding um, China of these, of, again, these monsters, extremely difficult to read in Chinese. Very interesting person who became very critical of the modernization forces in China in the 1910s and the 1920s. He also lived in Japan. He, um, he fled China for Japan, um, went to Taiwan first, which was a Japanese colony and worked on a newspaper there, Doug. And then he actually went to Tokyo. Tokyo was the center for Chinese revolutionary thinkers. Sun Yat-sen was there, did their organizing and their work there. Hmm. And so it was a hotbed for Chinese revolutionary thinkers. And Zhang lived in Tokyo for a while and was a Japanophile for a while. Hmm. What's his primary role in the sense of trying to, as uh, as much an anti-capitalist, right? How does he slot into your book? Doug, yeah. He's someone who is um, a, a Chinese nationalist. Mm-hmm. So like Jose Marti, really, and someone like Du Bois. Mm-hmm. If, if you just reread these people, Du Bois is being reread by young black scholars, Doug, to see the ecological critique in it. So kind of that's what I did for some of these East Asian figures. Gotcha. So you can reread Du Bois' whole corpus through a lens of climate and white people right. critique. And part of what got me to the climate and Caucasianism was rereading some of Du Bois' stuff. John is really like that. Not a specifically environmental thinker or ecological thinker, but who had an intuition about how monstrous this was. And that this regime of climate Caucasianism is unsustainable and the fact that it it needs to constantly go outside its own borders to steal things, food, fuel, people. To yeah. maintain its level of profitability, Doug. He understood he's, uh, the Marxist, you know, idea of the the vampire of of capitalism. Okay, that makes sense, and 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 that's uh, that's certainly interesting in terms of a nationalist perspective as well. There's there's a clear sense of you know being grounded in your place, a human in a place with the world around you, being interrelated and connected to that versus extra- extractors who come yeah. and go or make use of your people. Uh, while they're there as well. Nationalism is an easy response. You know, it's hard to argue with Marti about his nationalism. Yeah. Uh, It makes sense. So, uh, and I assume uh, Zhang's does too. Definitely does. But this is what makes Tanaka so much more interesting. This shows Tanaka Shozo, you said, right? Shozo? He's not really a nationalist. Oh, okay. Okay. He's a planetary thinker. He worked through these stages in his life and thought, where he becomes really a truly global ecological thinker. Part of what helped me think this is this great book by a, a comrade of mine named Robert Stoltz on Tanaka. But in that, he argues that Tanaka really is a global global thinker, not a, not a Japanese nationalist thinker at all. He was when he first started his environmental activism, but then he moves into a completely different place. Hmm. A Rachel Carson place, you could say. Oh, okay.
that's our show. We'll close with a final song from the Count Basie collection, the original American Decca recordings. This is London Bridge is Falling Down. Again, featuring trumpeter Buck Clayton, who collaborated with the father of Chinese pop music, Li Jinwei. Thanks to Mark Driscoll for complicating history for us and demonstrating that there are consistently bad people doing consistently bad things in the world, almost always in the service of profit by theft. We can recognize this and make sure we ruin the sacred truths by exposing the lies that prop them up. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is WFHB. Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station. Thanks for listening. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. We sang this little rhyme long ago in nursery time. Come, let's be kids again. Sing that old refrain.